He's arguably one of the most illuminating teachers of our time, an author of over 40 books and manuscripts out there to help you become the master of your life and destiny. And he's here to talk about one of his latest books, The Seven Secret Treasures. I have with me the legend that is Dr. John Demartini. And by the way, he's no stranger to this show. And so far, he's the only guest to have been here twice. And I'm very pleased to welcome back Dr. Don Demartini. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, I was just, we were just discussing, you've had a, a plethora of books and we're talking about how prolific you are in sharing your wisdom. Um, I was asked to talk to you about the seven secret treasures, uh, which is, uh, when did you release this book? I think that was released in October of last year. Brilliant. So I've been, I've been doing a few books. I've done four books since then. So I'm, I'm uh, on my sixth book. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I said, I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you do that. Um, but let's just, just, just start with Seven Secret Treasures, and maybe we'll move on to discussing some of the, the wisdom and the others. Um, what are the Seven Secret Treasures? I mean, that, that sounds very exciting. Well... <clears throat> Every human being has a pursuit in what I found to be at least seven areas of life. They have a desire to contribute to the world in possibly some sort of service or business. They have a desire to have a human quest for financial independence and freedom. They have a desire to have a relationship and have love and intimacy. They desire to have some sort of influence uh, socially, mm. a contribution socially. They have a desire to have vitality and beauty and well-being in their physical form. They want to be inspired and have some sort of spiritual quest. And they want to wake up their contribution intellectually. So they want to be able to learn and grow and contribute knowledge. I call these the seven immortalities. We would like to keep our ideas that live beyond our life. We'd like to have a business that goes beyond our life. We'd like to have our wealth live beyond our life. We'd like to have our family live beyond our life. We'd like to have our social influence live beyond our life to leave a mark. We'd like to have our genes, physical genes, live beyond our life. And we'd like to have some sort of a idea that there's something that goes on after life, some spiritual quest of some form, either you know, and most people believe in either reincarnation or a continuance of a soul or some sort of existential idea. So there's a yearning for immortality, primarily, as Ernest Becker says, as a result of the fear of extinction or death, but it drives us to do that. So the seven secret treasures are the empowerment of each of those seven areas. <clears throat> now, every human being lives by a set of priorities, a set of values in their life. And whatever is highest on their value, they're spontaneously inspired from within to pursue and to fulfill. But as they go down the list of the hierarchy of their values, they require extrinsic motivation to get them to do things. So they excel and they're more effective and efficient in their highest values. So anytime they can perceive that whatever they're doing in those seven areas is helping them fulfill those highest priorities and values, they have the ability to unfold the power that each of those offer. And they leave an immortal legacy, you might say, in each of those areas. 
So the seven secret treasures is about how to do that, how to learn according to what you value most. If you take a child who's going to school, who's uninspired and is labeled defiant and attention deficit, and they're not engaged in classes, but you find out what the child spontaneously loves to learn about, which they have something, it may be soccer, it may be trains, it may be socializing or whatever. And if you can show them the relationship between the class and what they value, they become more engaged in the class and participate and absorb, retain, and apply information more effectively. So there's a, the, the, the book is designed on how to maximize the potential in each of those areas according to the hierarchy of your values so you can self-actualize and fulfill your life. That's what the book is about. Yeah, it's, it really is, you know, me going through it, it really is a great blueprint of, you know, sometimes we feel like we need structure, something to follow because we're so kind of bombarded with so much information of what we should be doing and we're driven by our conditioning from our pasts, which often create how we experience our reality. And I think this book is like a wake-up call to our potential, what we could have if we tapped into our values. Uh, just knowing those is, is important enough. And you do on your website uh, a great test for people to discover their values, which I've directed many a client to, by the way, because yes. people ask me all the time, what are my values? And, I, and I, only you can find out these things. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great test, by the way. Yes. Well, thank you. I um, When I was 18 years old, I was watching a, a TV series one night at my parents' house. And it was Kung Fu with David Carradine. I remember it. And uh, not everybody who's under 50 will understand this <laughs> show, but if you're, if you're above 40s or 50s, you'll probably remember it. And... He was this uh, vagabond Chinese Shaolin master martial artist guy that was going around and with high morality um, and assisting people at wherever he traveled. And he used to refer to his master in the Shaolin temple. He kept having flashbacks to what his master taught him. And when I watched that one night, I, I was sitting in a lotus position in a yoga position because I was doing yoga in front of the TV. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, I thought, I want to master my life. I was 18 years old, and I thought, I want to master my life. So I said, what does that mean? It sounded cool. And so I went on a quest of what exactly is a master. I looked it up in dictionaries and encyclopedias. And then I said, well, I want to master my life. What exactly is life? And then I started looking at what are the components of life. And those seven areas emerged uh, back when I was 18. Yeah. And then I set out, I said, okay, I started writing down my master plan of how I wanted my life to look. You know, I wanted to create original ideas that serve human beings, something that was original that nobody's come across, that's a synthesis of the great ideas and make a contribution in the world mentally. Mm. I wanted to create a global business and have students in every country around the world, which 2016 we achieved wow. from that point on. I wanted to create financial independence where I now about 50 times financial independence. So I, I, I work because I love to, not because I have to. I wanted to create a global family where my 
that my loved ones are all over the world and we, we see the whole world as a big home. And instead of walking to room to room, we fly or sail room to room. And instead of uh, talking to somebody, you know, verbally, we use Skype and WhatsApp and these other things to communicate. So I always wanted to have a global family dynamic. Then I want to have social influence. I want to be able to have, move and shake with amazing people that have global impact. And I've been blessed to have over 4,000 global leaders that I've interacted with in some form of capacity. And then I had a desire to have a vital physical form, you know. I'm going on 69 and I've got more energy than most people in half my age. And they go, I don't know how you do what you do. And, uh, but I, I, tri- I figured out that I don't live to eat. I eat to live. I eat to perform yeah. and I prioritize and I have governance over what I feed my body and how I live my life. And I've structured things by delegating everything other than what I love doing, which is teach, research and write and travel. And then I also wanted to have a, an inspired state. I wanted to create a, an inspiring idea. I want to fill my day with the most inspiring ideas and I want to disseminate the most inspiring ideas I can on a daily basis and live an inspired and grateful life. I keep records of all my gratitudes and I have a 9,000 page document, 10 point print, one inch margins of gratitudes that I keep every single day. Yeah. So that was my one way of leaving my inspiration. So I set out to master those seven areas of life and the seven secret treasures is all of the, you might say the, the principles and methods and tools that you learn along the way and how to do that. I'm now passing that torch and sharing it with people. It's a simple book. It's not a big book. It's a simple, practical, inspirational book on how to take command of those seven areas and live by design, not by duty and live with a master plan instead of by default and to be fill your day with inspiration instead of having to put out fires with desperation. I love that. I love that. And, and you've just described brilliantly the whole book <laughs> um, and, and, and the inspiration from it. So I'm going to dive a little bit deeper with you. I mean, so you're you're young at 18 and you're watching Kung Fu, which I remember because obviously I'm over 50. And uh, obviously the term grasshopper uh, came to mind when you were talking about that. So it's nice to have that sort of childhood memory. Grasshopper. grasshopper yeah, definitely. And um, but... I mean, when I was reading through The Seven Secret Treasures, I was looking at the quantum fi- uh, matrix field and its its impact with you or, or with all of us. And is this where you think the inspiration came from? Because, you know, it's quite a young age to start receiving such wisdom. Where did it come from, do you think? And how did it drive you forward to where you are now? Well, I, you, you might remember I, I had childhood learning challenges mm. and I was told I was never going to be able to read or write or communicate or amount to anything mm. or go very far in life when I was in first grade. I, my parents had to come to the school and my teacher informed them of that. And I had a void, a pretty good sized void about learning and speaking, which is probably why I read and, and speak all day <laughs> today because People ask me, why do I do that? And I said, because I can. I found out I could. I didn't know I could at one time. But I really, 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 really wanted to understand and and understand life. I wanted to understand the laws of the universe. Mm -hmm. Ever since I met Paul Bragg when I was 17, who inspired me that night to have a vision 
I don't know if I ever showed you the vision that I saw when I was 17. Did I ever show you a picture of that? No, no, no. If you can, that'd be great. I, can I do that? Uh, when I was 17 years yeah. old, when I, when I was 17, I met Paul C. Bragg at a yoga class on the Sunset um, Recreation Hall in Hawaii, Oahu. And one night that man spoke and inspired me to believe that I could someday become intelligent. I never thought I was going to be able to read properly. I didn't read till I was 18. But I saw a vision that night in a meditation. He took us mm. to this guided imagery meditation. I saw this meditation where I was standing in front of a million people on this balcony over a square. And in the background, there was an iconic building from every major city around the world. And it was the, the message was, a man on a mission has a message and a vision. And that is what came to me. And so I'd, I'd like to share with you mm. this picture that I was speaking and saying this story when I was in Melbourne, Australia to about 1200 people. One okay. night. And this guy said, I'd like to, I'm a painter. I'd like to paint this, this image that you have. So he did. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, for anyone listening to this, um, there's a picture of John looking out over a crowd and there are buildings that are iconic buildings from all around the world. It, it really is. Wow. And this was, so how long, so remind me how long ago this was? That's a great picture. This vision, this vision occurred when I was 17. 17. Okay. So it's 50 plus years ago. Wow. And, uh, but the painting was not done until about 11, 12 years ago. I was in Melbourne. Australia, probably 12 years yeah. ago. And yeah, he painted it. And I just got tears in my eyes. It's a five foot by four foot painting. It sits in my office. When you walk in the office, you see it. And it's basically a representation of what's so deeply meaningful to me to share a message in the world. Uh, so that's what drives me is the pursuit of understanding the magnificence. You know, when I was 18, I, I read a book uh, one my uncle sent me by the German philosopher Leibniz, oh, yeah. Gottfried Wilhelm yeah. Leibniz. And um, he was the one that helped develop the calculus at the time that Newton was also developing it. And he said in his first chapter of the book, The Discourse of Metaphysics, he said that there's a divine perfection, a divine magnificence, a divine order, a divine love that's permeating the universe that few people ever get to know or see or experience. But those that do, their lives are changed forever. And I just got tears in my eyes when I read that. I said, I want to know what that is. I want to know how to obtain it. And I want to know how to share it and wake people up to see it. So that was the pursuit I started on when I was 18. And I found a way. And, I, and I've worked on that for 50 years on how to achieve that awareness. And that is what inspires me every day, sharing that. And working on that, refining it, adding to it, finding new additions to it and polishing it up and sharing that every single day just brings tears to my eyes. Yeah. And I, 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 I don't have anything I'd rather be doing than that. That's the most significant thing I get to do. Yeah, And I, and I still want to go a little bit deeper with that because it's incredible what you've done and what you're still doing. And it's I'm wondering where that came from. You know, because you're young, you're 17. And to have that type of vision to have that type of direction at such an early age is, is astounding. It's not something that I, I think many people experience. Where do you think that actually came from? Obviously, you're exposed to different things around you. 
what do you think, What? where did it originate from? You know, I can only speculate on parts of it, but I, I can say that the void that I had with learning um, was probably big. You know, I, I, I really didn't, I really desired to be intelligent, but I never thought I was going to be. Mm. And then the night that Paul Bragg spoke, and I found out that maybe I can, that what he said made me so inspired that I thought maybe I could overcome my learning problems and actually become intelligent. And I got so inspired by that possibility, and I saw new ways to overcome my challenges on how to do that, that I think it was just, it was in a moment of aha, mm. it's a, a gamma synchronicity, you know, alpha gamma synchronicity in the brain at that time, well, eureka moment kind of thing, and tears of mine. I must have been in tears for 20 minutes that moment. Mm. 20 minutes, I was there lucid visually in that space where that picture was. And I was there. I was, I, I was walking through a stoned archway with people on either side, men on either side, then walked out onto a balcony and out there was a million people down below. And I was sharing a message with people. And it was the counterpart uh, of what my life consisted of before that. It was like I couldn't speak. I'm now speaking. I, I didn't have intelligence. I now have something to say. You know, it, it was like the counterpart of what my life was consisting. I was good at surfing and standing on a surfboard, but I wasn't articulate. I used to have to have people ask me. I used to ask them to read for me. I still have a friend in California, Jackie Royd, who remembers having to read to me when I was 16, 17 years old. He sent me a letter the other day. And so that was a big void. And I think that became a big value when I finally realized that that wasn't true. What the teacher said wasn't exactly the, the truth. I now have, I have a new possible strategy I could overcome this with. And then when I found out I could, it was like, let's go. Let's catch up with everybody else and let's move. And then I found out that not everybody, many people took learning for granted. I didn't. Once I learned I could, I just, I really got into it. I just wanted to learn everything I can about every field I can. So I just, I'm polymathic in that respect. I've been devouring literature in every field I can to try to find the most universal laws that I can build a foundation of knowledge that I can share with people. I, I think that's so um, inspiring for anyone listening to that because we often get told that we're not going to be able to do something. I remember once my headmaster in my school telling me I wasn't likely to have a career. He couldn't imagine me with a career. Um, and I think that in a way that was a, an awakening moment of, well, I'll show you. <laughs> and it's led me, in, it's been part and parcel of where I am today. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't have, I wish I could have met that lady who is my, it was Mrs. McLaughlin, mm. the first grade teacher that said that to my parents. I wish I could have gone and hugged her and thanked her mm. because what she said put me on an adventure. It made me eventually drop out of school. I was a street kid from age 13. I lived on the streets and eventually lived at the beach and became, you know, a, a big wave rider, a big surfer, which eventually moved to California, Mexico, and then Hawaii. By the time I was 15, I was living on my own in Hawaii and surfing every day. So if it wasn't for that lady's statement, I wouldn't have gone through that adventure that was needed to do what I'm doing today. So I don't, 
I always say anything you can't say thank you for is baggage. Anything you can say thank you for in life is fuel. I would just give her a big hug and say, mm. thank you. You said exactly what was needed at that moment for my destiny. And um, thank you. So, you know, I don't, I don't look back and go, Oh, I, I, I she did the wrong thing or yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think that way. I always think of whatever is happening is on the way, not in the way. Yeah. I, it's, we just have to look, you know, there's a, this perfection is there and we sometimes get caught in the chaos because of our lack of information mm. and our missing information but once we see mindfully what's there, we are, we have gratitude. We see the order of it. There's a hidden order in the chaos, and that's what Leibniz was trying to say. And um, so I'm I'm a firm believer that, that, and I do what I can to try to teach people how to become resourceful that way and see things that way, because it's not what happens to us; it's our perception, decisions, and actions that make the difference. And you have command over those. No matter what's going on in your life, you have command and turning it into an opportunity like Viktor Frankl did in the concentration camp. You can find meaning in everything and extract meaning out of anything. And knowing and resourcefully knowing how to do that is one of the most powerful tools. So I don't, I don't find it productive to sit there and do false attribution biases and false causalities on outside circumstances and saying, well, I, I didn't have this. That's why I'm this way or I blame that. Or, I don't find her. I don't find giving blame to something mm. on the outside is going to do anything other than make you have to give credit to something on the outside. I'd rather look within and find out how whatever's happened to me is helping me fulfill what's most meaningful to me. And by, by God, it works. I mean, I, I've helped thousands of people take things they thought were in the way and turn them on the way. I think that's, I, for me, that I, I, I talk about this a lot with my clients and on my community. I think that's one of the ultimate mindsets of not being a victim to your past but in here in the present moment not letting the past dictate to you but here in the present moment choosing how you're going to see the past you know creating gratitude for any of the obstacles exactly. that's got you to where you are today any of the adversity and i, I love that you're sharing that i love that when that's, i was yeah when i was 23 i was going to professional school and i had this very interesting character show up in my class one day and interrupt the class right in front of the teacher. He was an Indian man and he comes up the aisle on the side of the room and everybody kind of wondered who he was. And he came up the front of the room and he says, those of you who want to study the great mysteries of life, come to this location at this time, at this date. And he walked up and we're like, people are going, what? <laughs> the teacher was like right in the middle of his lecture. But he had such an intrigue that I was there. I, I went to the location at the time. And he was a 35-year-old Indian man who had six PhDs, right, okay. six different PhDs, a doctor of divinity, a doctor of medicine, doctor of osteopathic, a doctor of chiropractic, a doctor of physiology, a six PhD, doctor of philosophy. Brilliant guy. And I learned from this guy. And one day I asked him a question and he said, what is the answer to your own question? You have it. You just ask for my authority to give you confirmation of what you already know. And I gave him the answer and he says, that's exactly what I would tell you. So trust yourself, trust yourself. And that was a very great thing to learn to, to go in, mm. study and learn from everybody, but synthesize it and syncretize it and then trust your knowing and create original ideas. We sometimes subordinate to the outer authorities instead of giving ourselves authority. Albert Einstein said, my contempt for authority is what made me the authority. <laughs> Same thing for Richard Feynman. 
And Emerson said, envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. Don't be second at being somebody else. Be first at being you. So I'm a firm believer in, in giving yourself permission to shine, not shrink, to stand out and be an unborrowed visionary instead of borrowed visionary and walk a path with a, your machete into the, and blaze a trail in the jungle, you might say, and start a new path that other people can, that can use a, to serve people. So I, I'm a firm believer that there's, there is nothing that goes on in your life that's not part of a perfection of what you're intending. Just a quick break to say I am so excited to announce a brand new podcast channel to help you transform your life in ways you might not yet be able to imagine. 2023, we are kicking your ass. Now, this is a channel of experimental content I know you are going to love. Now, Mindset Change Another Level has exclusive deeper subconscious training meditations to help you upgrade your long overdue programs that are holding you back in life. You also get searchable meditations with our ads, intros and outros so you can find your favorites super easily. You get access to masterminds to help take your mindset change to another level and you get to engage with me in a whole new way. And as a thank you for supporting the new channel, you get discounts from my group workshops too. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes and come and join. Oh, and feel free to come and join my WhatsApp community too. I can't wait to welcome you. I think just understanding that whatever we're experiencing, no matter what it is, it's for our highest good. And that's, that's tough for some people to get their heads around, yes. but it can be a very powerful way of beginning to take ownership and begin to change our perceptions of things. I, I, again, it's, I think it's part of our ultimate mindset. Exactly. Um, you know, we have these events in our life that we think are terrible, maybe. And then a day, a week, a month, a year, or five years later, we go back and go, oh, thank God that occurred. Or thank you for that. I'm so grateful that occurred. Well, why have the wisdom of the ages with the aging process? You can have the wisdom of the ages without it. Why not just look now? How did it serve you <laughs> and uncover it? Why have uh, a, a period of time which is entropic and ages you before you see the other side of the equation? Why not be mindful in the moment? And most people will react. And that's normal. But then the speed in which they go and look for the other side and become cognizant of both sides um, is determines their level of awareness. So I'm a firm believer in asking quality questions. Whatever I'm, if I'm having an avoidance reaction, I'm not seeing the upsides. If I'm having a seeking reaction, I'm not seeing the downsides. So whatever I'm avoiding or seeking with my amygdala, I go and look for the other side and balance it out. So I'm not letting the external world run me. I'm running from what my design is, what I'm inspired by. Most people are, are distracted by the outside world instead of called from within to do something amazing to the outside world. Yeah, how you touched upon questions just there, and I, I think the power of questions is often underestimated. And you talk about that in um, the Seven Secret Treasures. How powerful? I mean, can you just describe it in your, you know, from your perspective? How powerful are questions in regards to creating change in our life? They're the most significant. You know, you you when you're infatuated with somebody, you're conscious of the upsides, unconscious of the downsides. 
when you're resentful to somebody, you're conscious of the downsides, unconscious of the upsides. Your intuition is always trying to point out what you're unconscious of to make you fully conscious. So it's trying to whisper to you to look for the downsides of what you're infatuated with and look for the upsides to what you're resenting to bring you back into the center, into the mean, to extract meaning out of your existence. And if we listen to what our intuitive questions are and bring ourselves into equanimity and equity, we end up maximizing our potential in life. So instead of waiting for the body to do that and the mind to do that, we can just learn what those questions are and use those in advance and have a preemptive strike and have foresight with things. So I, I immediately, if I'm infatuated with somebody and I'm seeing more similarities and differences and more positives and negatives, I immediately ask, what are the downsides? Because if not, I'm going to put them on a pedestal. I'm going to minimize me. My shape, my minimized self is not my authentic self. I've just lost my authentic self because mm-hmm. I'm now minimizing to an exaggeration. I'm not seeing them for who they are. I'm not seeing who I am. But if I bring that back down and level the playing field and have reflective awareness where the seer, the seeing, and the scene are the same, I now reestablish a poise and a presence, and I appreciate and love, and I don't infatuate or resent. I'm now in a state where I can see that the, the, the divine in you is in the divine in me, the namaste state. In that state of liberation and not bondage, because whatever we infatuate or resent, we are in bondage to, mm. uh, we are liberated and we're able to be present. And so I learned to ask questions that homeostate my mind. Your brain is a homeostat. It's homeostating the electronics, the neurotransmitters, the chemistries in the brain. And it's also homeostating psycho, the psychology. You have a psychostat, like a homeostat. And if you're, in fact, we actually have what that's called the licensing effect. If we do something we're really proud of, we give ourselves permission to do something we're ashamed of to get us back down off the pedestal, get us back in equilibrium. Mm. People go and work out, right? They feel really good. And then they feel that they've earned the right to go and eat chocolate and eat and drink wine or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then they feel guilty from overeating and then they go out and work out. And these two polarities of pride and shame are homeostats to try to get us back in authenticity. If we don't allow ourselves to become addicted to the pride, we don't have to beat ourselves up with the shame. And people are trying to get rid of half of themselves and understanding that those two ha- ha- halves are necessary to keep us authentic. And so our authentic self is where our power is. So that's why asking questions that equilibrate the mind and bring it back into homeostasis is the most powerful questions we have. And we can change our life with those questions. What would be an example of a really good question that someone could ask themselves now to elicit elicit some form of change within a mindset shift? Well, let's say that you meet somebody that they've done something that challenges you and you feel a little resentment and avoidance of them. I ask a series of questions. This is part of my Demartini method. Uh, I ask what specific trait, action or inaction, do I perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating that I dislike, despise or hate or avoid the most? And I pinpoint what exactly it is that I'm judging. Once I identify what that is to a trait, an action or an inaction, because you judge people by some physical trait or something they've done too much of or too little of yeah. I then go and ask myself, now, John, go to a moment, John, to myself, go to a moment, John, where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating that same specific trait, action, or inaction. Mm. And uh, where were you? When were you doing it? To who you did it to and who perceived you that way? And I go in there and hold myself accountable to look deeper and discover that whatever I'm judging them for, I'm doing in my own life. 
when I'm pointing my finger, there's three back. There's a, there's a great quote in the New Testament in Romans 2.1 uh, that says that, you know, that which you judge in others is a reflection of what you are doing within yourself. And it's true. Mm-hmm. I've, I've proven that in yeah. over 100,000 people in just the breakthrough experience that I teach. So then once you level the playing field and have a quantitative and qualitative equilibrium of what you see in them inside you, you calm down some of the judgment and you realize that they're your teacher. They're pointing out to you what you have a button on inside you that you're feeling ashamed of. And they're reminding you of it. And it's giving you an opportunity to clear that out and bring yourself back into authenticity because your arrogance is trying to cover it up because you, you, you got a wound there on yourself and you've caught yourself in a moral hypocrisy. The third question is a great one is then go to a moment where and when you perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating that specific trait that you despise. And in that moment and from that moment till now, how is it helping you spiritually? How is it helping you intellectually? How is it helping you in your business? How is it helping you in your financial Mm -hmm. development? How is it helping you in your relationship? How is it helping you in your social life? How is it helping you physically? And how is it helping you fulfill your top three values in life, the things that are most meaningful to you? And hold yourself accountable to answer that. And I've done that. And I assure you, if people will take the time to be honest with themselves, they can find the answer. And once they see the upsides and benefits of that behavior that they thought were first only negative, all of a sudden they realize there's nothing there to judge. There's somebody to thank and somebody to appreciate for waking you up and making you more resourceful Mm -hmm. and bringing you back to authenticity. Then you could go and ask another question. Now go to back to the moment where and when you displayed the trait and at the moment you did and to who you did it to and who perceived it, how did it benefit them? And if you go and look at how it benefited them, you dissolve your shame and your self guilt because that's making you self depreciate and compensate with some sort of altruistic action. And in the process of doing it, you realize that you've been carrying around baggage for years and that's why you attracted the individual in your life to point that out. The people we attract that we resent are the people coming into our life to help us point out what we're judging in ourselves. Then we can go another step and we can ask, now go to a moment where and when you perceive the same individual displaying exactly the opposite trait, where they have the opposite trait, because nobody's nice without mean or kind without cruel or positive without negative or one-sided. So that way you don't have a subjectively biased interpretation of that individual. You see them for who they are, the whole. And then you find out that they're not only critical of you, but they're also praising you at times. They're not only rejecting you, sometimes they're desiring you at times. And you find the opposite side and break the label and realize that the label you project on them was a wound and you're protecting yourself and keeping your pride in protection instead of growing and maturing and actually being authentic. So you go in there and you ask these kind of questions. That's just five of 80 questions that I found. And there's no way you can go through those questions and hold yourself accountable and balance that equation out which are mathematical equations, without mm-hmm. having tears of gratitude at the end and realizing there was a hidden order in what was happening. There's a matrix of love and there was nothing to fix, nothing to change in them relative to you or nothing to change in you relative to them. There's just something to be grateful for. I mean, I, th- I think anyone listening to that will have a, a series of light bulb moments going off inside their heads, almost like they're, they're on the red carpet and there's the paparazzi um, taking lots of pictures because uh, just the the releasing of shame by realizing that the other person's experiencing and growing from um, you almost dealing with your own, um, I think Carl Jung has called it as the shadow self. Um, and that again, so what you're describing is a very powerful breakthrough experience. 
this is why you know this is why I didn't plan this interview John you know I knew that you would just I would just take it with you in a certain direction I trusted that this would go in in a certain direction and it really really has um you talked about the matrix of love um so I'm trying, I just can you just pin can I just pinpoint or pin that down as to what that really is and I think that's, that's a, a, you talk about it in your latest book uh, well one of your latest books can you describe what it is for uh, listeners yeah, I, I'm just finishing up today an article that's going to Jet Set Magazine. I, I, I've written for 1,533 magazines around the world, and one of them is Jet Set Magazine. And uh, I've just, every edition I write an article for it. This particular uh, issue is called The Law of Contrast. The Law of Contrast. And um, let me elaborate on that, and I'll answer the matrix by, okay. by, by doing this, going this pathway. Yep. If you're infatuated with somebody, you have a philia. If you resent somebody, you have a phobia. A philia is an assumption that there's going to be in the future, through your senses or imagination, more positives and negatives about to occur. And a phobia is an assumption that you're about to, in the future, through your imagination or senses, more negatives about to occur. So anytime you have a philia and you infatuate with somebody, you fear their loss. And anytime you have a phobic or resentment to somebody, you fear their gain. So anytime you're polarized and have an imbalanced perspective, which the amygdala is noted for in the brain for doing as a way of surviving to capture prey and to avoid predator, the moment we do that, we're creating fears and fantasies, phobias and phileas in our life. And they're separating. So the amygdala separates the inseparables, divides the indivisibles, labels the unlabelables, names the ineffables, and polarizes the unpolarizables, and tries to divide itself. In biblical writings, it says mm -hmm. the house divided cannot stand. A human being that's divided between the conscious and unconscious cannot stand. If you're infatuated, you're conscious of the upsides, you're unconscious of the downsides. You have a separation. You're blind and ignorant of the downsides. If you're resentful, you're conscious of the downsides, unconscious of the upsides. You're now blind and ignorant of the upsides. But when you see both sides simultaneously, you're fully conscious. And when you see both sides simultaneously, Wilhelm Wundt, the father of experimental psychology, called it simultaneous contrast. The moment you do, you get a gamma wave, synchronous in the brain. You have maximum potential. You have tears of gratitude. You feel love. You're inspired, enthused, certain, and present. The wow. transcendental state. Yeah, yeah. That state is where the power is. And so the matrix is what's actually there because you cannot have one side without the other. Heraclitus, 5th, 6th century BC, who is a pre-Socratic Greek philosopher at Ephesus, taught at Ephesus, which still has remains today. He said that there's a unity of opposites and all pairs of opposites are born together and die together. So if you're, if you're infatuated with somebody who's kind, you'll resent somebody cruel. If you're resentful to somebody's cruel, you're infatuated with somebody's kind. But the infatuate and resentment are always a contrast. And in every perception that you polarize, the other side is there unconsciously, the shadow, if you want to call mm. it. The moment you're aware of both sides simultaneously, you're liberated from the bondage of the, the pain and pleasure that's distracting your mind when you have lopsided perceptions and judgments, the emptiness. If you're infatuated with somebody, you minimize yourself and you feel too humble to admit what you see in them is inside you and you've got a disowned part. 
When you resent somebody, you're too proud to admit what you see inside them, inside you, and you have a disowned part. Those disowned parts are empty. They're, they're missing pieces of yourself. They're, as the Greek Gnostics used to call kenoma, the emptiness of the judgment. The moment you actually bring those into equilibrium and see so, both sides simultaneously, you have fulfillment, pleroma. You have love. Mm. You have grace. You have a, a, a confirmation of authenticity. That's where the power is. The matrix is always present, but humans are not always aware of the matrix. And the quality of your life is based on the quality of the questions you're asking. If you ask quality questions, allow you to see both sides simultaneously, you get to experience the magnificent matrix. And that's the divine order, the magnificent order. That's the implicate order, as Bohm would describe. That's the magnificence of the universe that we have access to. And it brings tears of gratitude as a confirmation mm -hmm. of a moment of authenticity. And that's what Leibniz was trying to say back in the old days, 400 years ago. And what I try to share today, passing the torch. Wow, that's, I get it. It's, my mind is blown a little. There's a lot for me to process uh, with that. Um, and what impact is, just finding out this information, what impact has it had on you, John? <laughs> well, I can't think of anything I'd rather be doing on the yeah. planet than that. So I just do it every day. Um, I do, you know, get out sometimes. Like yesterday, I went out for about an hour and an hour and a half or so. I walked around um, a magnificent uh, location. I've been in some magnificent places and, uh, where, I, where I sail. And I go for a walk sometimes and just, you know, get to see beautiful scenery, inspiring scenery, inspiring locations. That, then I come back and I get back to my teaching, researching, and writing. And um, I don't know of anything I'd rather be doing. People go, why do you do it so much? And I said, because I can. Yeah. There was a time when I couldn't. Yeah. There was a time I didn't know how to. And they go, well, why would you do that? You know, you don't have to work and everything else. I said that nothing gives me more fulfillment than watching light bulbs go on in mm -hmm. people and having people say, thank you. I've just seen the magnificence of my life. I now know what I can do. And I mean, you know, you mm -hmm. do the same thing. You're, you're out there, you know, transforming lives every day. And you know, when you get thank yous and letters and how meaningful that is. And to be able to take ideas and be able to share and disseminate them in a way that somehow people can benefit from is extremely valuable extremely rewarding it is it's, it's what it's, it's what drives me too it's it's I, I was i was refining this the other day i absolutely love sharing knowledge it's not knowledge it's not my knowledge exactly. it's not my it's not you know i've not come up with this so i might i might tinker with some things but i love sharing what other people have come up with because it deserves to go to a larger audience and that's that's what's important to me. That's why this show actually exists. And um, I wanted to just ask you, you know, obviously you absorb so much in the way of information. What's exciting you right now? Is there anything that you're beginning to explore that's new to you that is changing again how you experience the world? Well, that goes on every day. I mean, I'm researching every single day of my life. But um, I did just a couple days ago uh, get some real insight. I'm working on a new textbook on neurology. I'm writing a big textbook on neurology. And, and, um, and something that I wanted to know when I was in 1976, 1976, I was studying organic chemistry with Dr. James Cox. 
I was his lab assistant, his lab rat. And we were looking at how do we create life? We were mm -hmm. looking at Operon's models and all the different things and doing, taking various, uh, you know, amino acids and components that made up amino acids and putting them there and shocking them with electricity and trying to come up with new neuro, I mean, new uh, biomolecules and things. And, and I was doing all this electrophoresis studies. And, and um, one of the things that we came across was enantiomers. In chemistry, there's carbon-based organic chemistry that um, allows a carbon-based system to have an isomer that's completely opposite to it. And there's non-superimposable mirror images of each other. So you can have an isomer that's the same, except it's just reversed on one of the, one of the rotation mm. on one of the, the bonds. And I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. And there's what they call D sugars and L amino acids that make up most of life. Mm. They're level, that means when you shine light on them, they rotate leftward or rightward um, as a result of it. And these are called enantiomers, and these are called dextrorotatory and level rotatory chemistries. Well, I was always wondering why we had one side dominate and the other side not. And the data had not given us insights, but I always just stored that. I go, why is the universe set up that way? Why, why do why biomolecules, sugars right and amino acids left? So I've never been satisfied with the answers I've gotten because mm -hmm. nobody's known. But I put some puzzle pieces together the other day, and I found some new information on neurotransmitters. You see, these little amino acids make up, uh, join together and to make peptides. These peptides become neurotransmitters. The neurotransmitters affect receptors. The receptors are made of glycoproteins, which are little peptides and sugar attachments. And some of those are rightward and some of those are leftward, and they're actually balancing out chemistry there. And then I, what I did is I found some D amino acid based transmitters. And I found out that the D amino acid transmitters do the exact opposite of the L and one's a facilitator and one's an inhibitor. One actually brings wellness. The other one brings illness. Ah, okay. And I thought, wow, nature has a way of bringing a symmetry into it and just one's dominant, one's the other. And so I thought is the dominant because we have a bias in our interpretation of research and we've now blocked out information and that's what it looks like it's happening. We're actually not seeing the whole picture of, of neurology, and we have subjective bias interpretations of physiology. So I, I uh, uncovered some new information mm. on, on the D uh, amino acids, and, um, and, and now I put that into the model in my new textbook on, on the brain, because our brain has facilitators inhibitors, and inside each of those, those transmitters can be isomers, and they can reverse the effect. And so the question is, is what's doing that? And then I found out that biophotons inside the brain and between DNA and uh, shooting out through the brain, biophotons are actually causing them to isomerize and to pull off to the other side and turning things on. And there's an intelligence side, a, a light evolved intelligence inside the brain that's trying to make sure that we have homeostasis. And so I've really uncovered some really cool stuff on the brain in, in the last few days. Oh, that's really good to hear. I could go for yeah, hours. Yeah, I, 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 I guess that. But what would be the, so in a nutshell, what would be the impact? Do you think, where, what's exciting you about that? Where could it lead? How could it help uh, anyone who was listening to the show, for example? Because obviously you're writing about it in your new book. It, it, what, what, it's, what it's about is that there is such a magnificence, a hidden order in every aspect of our life. And it's our lack of understanding, our limited knowledge, 
our finiteness of our awareness that's stopping us from becoming in a state of awe of how just our cells and physiology work. In epigenetics, for instance, we know that if we are under a challenge, uh, fight or flight sympathetic response, that we methylate our DNA and histones and some of the other components in the, in the cell. But then what we do is we methylate it, we're reducing the compounds because we've over-oxidized and it's a homeostatic feedback to make sure that the chemistry is brought back into balance. And if we're supported, we acetylate, we bring acetyl over and we acetylate the things and we find out that that oxidizes. So what those epigenetics is basically storing memories that are imbalanced to try to bring us back into authenticity. So down at the genetic level, down at the histone and transcription of protein levels, this is going on to try to help us become authentic. The more I probe into the mm. mysteries of existence, the more in awe I am on how magnificent the universe was structured to guide human beings to do something extraordinary in evolution. That's how, that's how impactful yeah. it is. Yeah, I'd be fascinated to see yeah. what, what else you come up with in regards to that, because I think that can be very, very powerful just to... Again, it comes back to understanding ourselves, but I love the way that you're pointing out our own bias is changing the way that we experience research. So we're not really we're not really seeing things as they are. We're choosing to see things and how we believe they are. Um, and that is, I think, that has... Paul Paul yeah Paul Dirac, the Nobel Prize winner. I read his book many years ago called The Principles of Quantum Mechanics, and uh, he. Uh, he said, it's not that we don't know so much. We know so much that isn't so. <laughs> and yeah. uh, there used to be a thing called universal intelligence. And, uh, and then there was educated intelligence and innate intelligence. The universe was an intelligent panpsychic field of, of knowledge. Each of us were subsets of that that had an inborn intelligence trying to bring homeostasis. And then we had educated intelligence, all the stuff we've been taught that isn't so, mm. the moral hypocrisies that we run our life by excuses and causes our illness and causes our symptomatology in the areas, seven areas of life. And so I'm interested in how to transcend the, the subjective bias interpretations of reality, the things that make us gullible and skeptical, that make us polarize and judge, that leave us empty, and how to get past those and see how no matter what's going on, it's trying to help us become objectively in a state of authenticity and equanimity. See, our physiology, our psychology, our sociology, even our theologies are nothing more than feedback mechanisms to help us maximize our potential on planet Earth. But it's been misinterpreted because of moral hypocrisies. Moral hypocrisy is trying to make us feel nice, never mean, kind, never cruel, instead of nice and mean simultaneously. You can be nice to a child and protect a child and be mean to somebody who's trying to harm it. You can be nice and mean yeah. or paired. You can be nice to somebody by making it easy on somebody, but making them now dependent on you, which is mean. So the yin and yang is inseparable in actuality, but we see one side without the other and get caught and trapped by the educated moral constraints instead of the actual magnificent order that's there. And asking quality questions is what liberates us from those illusions. I think that's incredibly powerful. I really does. I, I think we're we're really struggling with the polarization of so many uh, so many things in life at the moment, and to just to bring it down to holding both in that same space instead of being one side or the other. We we go through. We we see all these people yeah. on television, right? These politicians. Um, I was joking with a gentleman the other day. He said he says the politics. He he was just shaking his head. 
Well, Polly means many and ticks means bloodsuckers. So I teased <laughs> him and I said, well, it's just many bloodsuckers. But, but um, many time politics is trying to get the polls from the masses and the, the masses, as, as Milgram says, Stanley Milgram says that, you know, most people subordinate to outer authorities, 80% of the people mm. do. And very few people can have critical analysis and actually have objective thinking. So the most politicians have taken a poll, one side or the other, and create an opposite poll. For every position, there's an opposition. And so they think they're right and the other people wrong, and the other people think they're right and other people wrong, and they're distracting. And you, you're sitting there in the social medias and mass medias just getting distracted by all that nonsense. But the master is the one that's sitting in the center, sees the value of both sides simultaneously, transcends the polarities, doesn't get caught in the illusion that if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything, which is what the mm. motto is of the mass illusion. And you transcend it, have a meta-ethical positioning. When you do that, you're not distracted, you're focused and you stabilize and you center. And behind the scenes, you rise to the position of power. Even though you're not seen by the public, you're actually running the show behind the strings, pulling the, pulling the strings because you're not attached to it. I think I think that is incredibly wise and something that we could all be aiming for. I, I, be, I, it, we'd be experiencing a very different world if we weren't so polarized. I think we really would. But I'm a big believer that we're experiencing a lot of polarization because I think that's how we'll wake up. And that's why I kind of, you know, it's, uh, it's easy to get caught up in the drama of it, but I'm very grateful where we are right now because, I, I, you know, I'm a big fan of almost like the phoenix. We always burn down something to create something in you. Um, Dr. John D. Martini, you've been an amazing guest. Again, this is amazing. I'm glad you've come back onto the show. Um, obviously, you've got the seven secret treasures coming out. So that's uh, available on that's available now on Amazon. Um, what's your latest book? Give that a quick mention. What's the one that you've just released? But the one that was released a few weeks back was called The Resilient Mind. Ah, okay. And how to transform uh, depressions and anxieties and all these illusions that we, the pharmaceutical company wants you to believe that you have a biochemical imbalance about, which is not so. Okay. Um, and how to, you know, transform your own perception so you can take command of that and have unbelievable resilience. That's what the new book's about. I have another book called uh, The Productivity Factor, how to do twice as much in half the time. And the um, people ask me, how do I get things done? And I'm sharing the insights that I found along the way. And then a new book called The Essentials for Emotional Intelligence, The Essentials of Emotional Intelligence. Yeah. That's the one that's just about to be sent off to the publisher tomorrow. Wow. Well, good luck with that. Um, I'm going to have to get you back on to talk about The Resilient Mind and also productivity. I think you'd have to do, just be a regular guest, uh, John, because I'd like to dive, dive deep into all of those. So please come back. Um, I'll put your uh, details again of how to people to contact you in the show notes, but Thank you so much again for being a great guest. It's nice to see you again. Um, and good luck with your latest books. It's lovely seeing you. Thank, you. thank you. And thank you for great questions and for our time together. You're, Appreciate you're welcome. It. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Dr. John Martini. Please share it with anyone you believe would benefit from our conversation. And if there's someone you would love me to interview, please let me know in the show notes or contact me via Instagram at Mindset Change UK or feel free to join my WhatsApp community. Again, the link is in the show notes. Come and say hello. Again, thanks for listening and I hope you have the most incredible day. Mm-hmm.